right, Romans 7. So it's interesting, my first observation is that when the Bible was originally written and the apostles and so on were writing their letters and the gospel writers writing the gospels, they didn't split them up into chapters and verses. You probably already know this, but I thought I would say it anyway because it's just interesting to note that chapter 7 begins with the word or. And I've never come across a chapter in a book beginning with the word or because or suggests an alternative to the previous thought and a complete, not a complete, but a, a direct follow-on. So I'll begin by ending with chapter 6 or reading the end of chapter 6 because it was a while ago. And um, we read from chapter 6, verse 20, For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? So when you were not a, a believer, when people aren't believers, they don't, can't, they don't have a conviction of sin, so therefore they don't, they don't worry about these sorts of things. For the end of these things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of life, but the but the gift of God, sorry, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it carries on from chapter seven. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who has raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. <clears throat> but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will to do, that I practice. And if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in the law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There's quite a lot in there, obviously. Basically, the law has dominion over human beings for as long as they live, and Paul likens that to a marriage. As long as both the husband and the wife are alive, they are bound to each other, and they are free if one dies, obviously, until death do us part. And so it is with the law. Outside of Christ, the only way to heaven is by total obedience to the law. And the law makes it clear that we are sinners. And the law, and Paul, sorry, goes on to say, so far, Paul, sorry, Paul goes so far as to say that the law quickens sin. That is to say that the law kind of produces desires, sinful desires. That is not to say that all would be well if it was not for the law, because um, even before the law is given, that doesn't mean to say that you are not a sinner. It's just that the law through its perfection, shows us our sin, and the law also cannot save us from sin. So the law is really only um, useful in that it shows that we are sinners. The law shines a spotlight on you. It shows you a commandment you cannot keep, and it illustrates that you are a sinner through the inability to obey that commandment and the many others that you can't obey. But that is as far as the law goes. That is as far as its usefulness is for us. Because it doesn't help us in any way, it doesn't assist us in any way when we struggle with our sin. And it most certainly cannot save us from our sin. So struggling away with your sin, whatever it might be, whatever temptation it might be, whatever issue it might be, You cannot be helped by looking at the law and saying, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be envying, or I shouldn't be lying, or whatever. That in and of itself isn't going to save you. But Christians, those who have come to Christ and have been born again, they are freed from the law, inasmuch as we are married to Christ. Um, Now that doesn't mean to say that we should disregard the law. 
Because while the law itself isn't, um, isn't something that we need to obey for the sake of our salvation, it's not something that we disregard either. So, for example, if someone were to drive up to my place with a brand new Lexus and I found myself envying them, that's not right. And I should say to myself, that isn't right. And if I find that I cannot stop envying this brand new Lexus because it's incredibly amazing, um, and note that it's not a Holden, it's a Lexus, which is a posh Toyota, by the way. Sorry. Um, and if I can't stop enemy, and, and, and if I'm thinking to myself, I must have a Lexus, I, you know, um, how can I do, you know, become obsessed with it? I need to ask the Lord to help me to stop doing that. So it's not a salvation issue as such, but it is an issue. So we don't disregard the law. And there are many other parts of the law that we just, we just don't disregard it. The law cannot save us, but we still need to obey it because everything, when you don't, it's wrong. But as a means of salvation or helping us, it is not for that. So we're no longer under the law. Our connection to Christ means that we should bear fruit. And it is in this area that we rely on the Lord through his Holy Spirit for the help to bear fruit. So we find ourselves envying, and we cry out to the Lord to help us to stop envying. That's where the choice comes in. We can't help that we envy something because we have certain, um, if, you don't, if, if it's not a car you'll envy, it'll be something else you'll envy, etc. We can't help the fact that it comes in the first place, but we can help the fact that we cry out to God or not for help in that area. And so our connection to the Lord by the empowering of the Holy Spirit helps us to resist these temptations and the envyings of whatever it is that might be going on in our lives. So the law cannot save us, but the law helps us to understand that we are sinners and by crying out to the Lord, we are given the help we need. So the final part of the chapter, or really the it's not really the final part. I suppose it's the last half. Verses 13 through to 25 have been the subject of some debate over the years. Because the question is, does this describe specifically Paul's pre-Christian experience or his post-conversion experience? And generally, is this about our pre-Christian experience or our post-conversion experience. And there are reasons to believe, or there are reasons to believe that Paul is talking about his pre-Christian experience specifically, and therefore generally about our pre-Christian experience. Because it describes quite accurately, in some respects, the life of a non-Christian living as a sinner. Because if you are outside of the Lord, <coughs> If you don't know the Lord, then you can't live righteously. Nothing you do will be righteous in God's sight. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You can try to do the right thing, whatever that right thing might be. 
You might not like exploding at people. <coughs> you might not like um, stealing, I suppose. But you might feel compelled to do these things. You can't do what is right on a consistent basis. And at the same time, one of the arguments that this is a pre-Christian experience is that there is no mention of the Holy Spirit in relation to this until chapter 8, that is living by the power of the Holy Spirit, where we begin with, there is therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we're just jumping ahead there a little bit. But that doesn't come until chapter 8. And so the assumption is that because of that, Paul is talking about his pre-Christian experience. But, so that's the argument that it's pre-Christian, but I'm going to say that it's not. Paul is not talking about his pre-Christian experience. Because the argument that he is, is based on some very unsound assumptions. And the argument runs into some serious trouble. Because we must ask the question, is it realistic that Paul is describing his pre-Christian life? Because Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees, as we know, were very self-righteous. And while it may technically be true that Pharisees could not do what is right in God's sight, they were not involved in this struggle because as far as they were concerned, everything they did was right. Let's think about Paul giving assent to Stephen's stoning. Paul was present at the stoning of the first martyr, and he approved it. So are we seriously believing that Paul said to himself, I wish I hadn't approved Stephen's stoning. I really, I could not help myself. I couldn't help but approve his stoning, and I wish I hadn't. That's ludicrous, I think. Is it realistic that those letters that Paul wrote that caused um, Christians to be dragged away and imprisoned, is it realistic to say that Paul wished he hadn't wrote those, written those letters, that he felt himself compelled to write them, and against his will he knew it was wrong? No, of course not. He believed absolutely that what he was doing was right, and he was doing it for God. He believed that, and if he'd been alive today he would have copied and pasted them multiple times and sent them out via WhatsApp. Because he absolutely believed that those letters he wrote in Acts before he was converted were right and righteous. So while he himself was not righteous, and while he himself was convicted by the law at a certain point in time, and we only know about his conversion, we only know about him being blinded on the road to Damascus and... Um, then being led to a certain place. We don't know what conviction the Lord brought, but we can probably guess that it had something to do with the law and that Paul saw himself for what he truly was, a sinner. But before he was converted, before that point in time, he was very self-righteous and he said so himself. He said in many places, well, in certain places he said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He wasn't just a Pharisee, he was like the creme de la creme of this self-righteous bunch. And Pharisees never struggled in the way that Paul describes in verses 13 to 23. 25, 25 verses 13 to 25. Now maybe Nicodemus did, because Nicodemus, it seems, was a more open and honest Pharisee, one who actually 
had a heart for the Lord rather than a heart for his own righteousness. And if you've ever seen the series Chosen about the life of Jesus, um, you will see that he, you will see Nicodemus portrayed in a light as one who truly seeks the Lord. But he is probably, or he was probably an exception in terms of the Pharisees. Because at a general level, the Pharisees were very self-satisfied in their own righteousness. So I don't think that this is describing Paul's pre-Christian life as such. I mean, it could be describing someone's pre-Christian life, but at a general level, I don't think it is. Because at a general level, I don't think unbelievers constantly struggle with the way Paul describes. Many people are self-righteous and think that they're wonderful. I mean, that's why we have people dobbing each other in. I mean, sometimes, sometimes when you call the police, if you see someone driving like a maniac, um, <coughs> it's not self-righteousness to dob them in because they could kill someone. I mean, I remember driving home from work one day and someone was coming the other way and they were going incredibly fast. It looked like they were going around 200 kilometers an hour around the bend just before Mount Stewart. And I thought, well, it's very dangerous. And then a few minutes later, there was a police car going in the same direction with sirens blaring. So someone had probably called it in, not because they thought, oh, how terrible that person is, but because they thought that's incredibly dangerous if he crosses the he or she, I thought, assume it's a he, usually it's blokes that drive like that. <laughs> Testosterone in young men. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, anyway, could have been a girl, but let's assume it was a bloke. Someone, if he crosses the centre line, he'll kill someone. Innocent. So that's not self-righteousness, but there is a lot of self-righteousness in people. So people, um, cons most people, and we're talking the human race here, but most people probably don't struggle in the way that Paul describes. They think they're wonderful. If you did the good person test on someone and asked them, are you a good person? They would invariably say yes until they're confronted with the Ten Commandments that they break on a daily basis in one way or another. So it takes the law to confront someone. Then maybe when someone comes under conviction, they might start struggling like this when they become aware of God's standards rather than human standards. But as long as someone is unaware of God's standards, then I can't see how they'd be constantly struggling like this. Then again, it doesn't mean that an individual non-believer doesn't struggle in a certain area and want to improve and go to self-improvement classes. So it's, it's difficult to pin it down at a general level, but I don't think it typically describes the typical experience of a non-Christian. So if this is not a pre-Christian experience that Paul is describing, what exactly is Paul talking about here? Now, is Paul accurately describing his own actual Christian life at a specific level? And at a general level, the typical Christian life of all Christians. Is this what he's describing? Now we know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Um, some people think it was his eyes. So he says, I can't remember where it was, but God gave him a thorn in the flesh and he asked God to take away from him. 
And um, elsewhere, Paul talks about how some of those he'd ministered to would have given them his eyes. So some scholars have put two and two together and said, well, the thorn in the flesh might, be, might have been an eye problem. We don't know for sure. But he had a thorn in the flesh. It might have been something else. We know he wasn't perfect, obviously. Now, it's not like with some characters in the Bible, we see their imperfections, like King David is the, is, is the prime example. We don't see that, I don't think, with Paul, but we can assume safely that he was not perfect. And we also know that he admonished believers in many different places to put off the works of the flesh and to renew their minds and to seek those things which are above, and so on and so forth. And so we know that the struggle that <coughs> so we know that the struggle that Paul describes is not meant to be the typical general Christian life. So this shouldn't be shouldn't really be describing the typical Christian life. But it does describe the dilemma that Christians often face. Because while it is true that we should be putting off the flesh and renewing our minds and looking to things above, it's not always very easy. Because as people, we still inhabit the flesh. And that means that there will be some areas of weakness that we will find very hard to overcome. For some it will be food, for some it will be um, material possessions, an endless list of things that we can talk about. And so this is something that Christians can and often do face. The evil that they will not to do, they do. The good that they know to do and want to do, they don't. So it is a dilemma. And so believers, as believers, we should desire to do the right thing. We should desire to live holy and righteously because that is what God has commanded in many different places in the New Testament. But because we still inhabit this flesh, it can be very difficult. And because of sin, no good thing dwells within the flesh. In fact, we know that. Um, it's like it's hardwired into our DNA. Every aspect of our being is hardwired with sin, in a way. It is total um, base of our being, of our flesh being, that is to say. So surely Paul is describing life if you were to try, well, he's describing two things, <clears throat> maybe. First thing is he, would be, he could be describing life as a Christian if you were trying to please God with your own efforts. If you were trying to please God in your own strength, verses 13 to 25 may very well describe you. You want to do the right thing, you want to live righteously and holy, but for some reason you think you can do it in your own strength. Having come to the Lord, having been born again, you then proceed, like the Galatians, in the flesh to please God. You have 
in a sense, fallen from grace, as the Galatians did. They came to the Lord, they were born again, and then they continued on after they had been bewitched, so to speak, in the flesh, trying to please God by Jewish customs and so on. Maybe, maybe sometimes we do that. Maybe sometimes we try and please God, try not to lose our temper, we try not to envy certain things, we try not to worry, but all in our own strength, perhaps. But we can't do it. And even if we somehow succeeded, <clears throat> our motives would be wrong, or our success would lead to pride. But at the same time, Paul might be describing the ongoing war that occurs in the believer. <coughs> and we are at war. Between the flesh and between the Holy Spirit who lives in us when we became born again. So that's separate from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a, is a separate experience which I won't go into today. But we are at war. So there is a war, a conflict of interest, which is what a war is. When, when the United States went to war with Iraq, or the Allies went to war with Iraq back in 1991, it was a simple conflict of interest. Saddam Hussein wanted to have Kuwait. The Allies didn't. So they kicked him out. There's a conflict of interest. And there's a conflict of interest between your flesh and the pleasures that it seeks, and the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, the Spirit in you, who seeks for you to become holy and righteous in God's eyes. And there's an ongoing battle. And it's very difficult. Because you may have weaknesses in certain areas. Someone else will have a weakness in another area. And it's very difficult to, um, <clears throat> to understand someone's weakness in one area and your weakness in another area, but it doesn't really matter what area it is, there are weaknesses. There's going to be somewhere that we struggle. So we occupy a body of flesh with the same sinful desires that we had before we were Christians. But because we belong to the Lord, <coughs> He empowers us by His Holy Spirit to live victoriously. So He can, so we can rely on the empowering of the Holy Spirit to live victoriously. But there are struggles that we have in our lives. We may feel, for example, like I gave the um, example of the envying the, uh, the Lexus, the brand new Lexus. It's a struggle. But you can rely on God to empower you to not feel that way to not envy, but it doesn't happen just like that. God doesn't magic it away because he wants us to grow through these struggles. At the same time, he wants us to produce the fruit. So we may have someone in our life who we struggle with for whatever reason, and we can either explode at them, or we can ask God to give us the grace to be patient with that person. And that is one of the spirit, um, one of the fruits of the spirit: patience and kindness. And that brings also thankfulness and love. But it's not something that just happens overnight. It's not something that happens the snapping of the fingers. It's something that happens because we seek the Lord 
and we dig into him, so to speak, and we dig into his word and we ask him for the strength and the power to be kind to the difficult person, to not be envious, to not be proud, to show us where we are going wrong in our lives, and so on. And so, I think, chapter 7, verses 20, sorry, verses 13 through to 25, is describing, in a sense, the struggle that can occur in our Christian life. And I have alluded to the antidote, for want of a better word, which starts the beginning of chapter 8. So we'll look at that, obviously, next time. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for, um, for this day. Thank you and praise you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have understanding into your word and understanding into the ways that you help us and guide us. And we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.